the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. So excited about today's episode. Two special guests, Caitlin Brown and Patrick V. Ruszewski, join me to highlight their AJHP publication, Extracorporeal Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation, a.k.a. ECPR, a primer for pharmacists. So we get to hear from two different perspectives, right? The emergency medicine and emergency department uh, viewpoint. Um, and then, of course, the other from the cardiothoracic surgery and ECMO viewpoint. So kind of both the the extremely acute when they come in and then the more critical critical care, kind of more longer term, the cannulation self, all the things. I mean, we review landmark studies, discuss maybe why results should be interpreted with a little bit of caution. Uh, we discuss ideal patients. What's what are contraindications? Relative, absolute treatment goals, guidelines, uh, differences in eCPR treatment compared to that classic ACLS algorithm. Advice when setting up an eCPR program. We walk through what it looks like from when that patient hits the door to cannulation. Much, much more. What a great episode today! So let's get going. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And very lucky to be joined by Caitlin Brown and Patrick Vyrushevsky, or Patrick W., uh, as he um, affectionately is uh, known as. Now, Caitlin is an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist and assistant professor of emergency medicine and pharmacy at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at CBTheFarmD. And Patrick is a cardiothoracic surgery and ECMO pharmacist. Vice Chair of Clinical Pharmacy Research and Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology and Pharmacy at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester as well. Find him on Twitter at P-W-I-E-R-U-S-Z. And if you're wondering why I'm spelling that, it's because it's a short piece of his last name. So, um, and the other thing, um, if you love creative pins... 
for your badge, your bag, wherever, right? Gifts, uh, Curious Boxwood on Etsy is a Patrick and Aaron Vyrushevsky collaboration related to this episode, right? Vasopressor and ECMO themed pins. So this is the place for you. You'll be able to find it pretty quick. Uh, support our own, right? Pharmacists doing doing cool things. And as I mentioned in the episode intro, uh, these two are the uh, first and senior author, respectively, on the July AJHP article entitled Extracorporeal Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation, a Primer for Pharmacists. So I know we did in the intro, but quick reminder, we're going to highlight some key things right from this article while expanding on the eCPR process itself. Caitlin, welcome. Patrick, welcome back. How are you both doing today? Good. Excited to be here with you, Nick. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Nick. Uh, Very excited. Always enjoy uh, getting to talk to any of our friends from the Mayo Clinic here. Um, And definitely, you know, we have... You know, Caitlin and Patrick here, but this was certainly a collaborative effort. Um, there's, uh, you know, four other pharmacist names, colleagues of theirs in the Mayo Clinic, right, working on this. So certainly a a tag team effort. Um, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. So we have tons to get into. And starting off, this this feels like a simple but probably somewhat necessary question. Patrick, what is eCPR? Yeah, I mean, really, it is quite simple, Nick. It's um, eCPR is essentially just the use of extracorporeal circulation for CPR. Um, so unlike conventional CPR, where we do chest compressions, uh, eCPR is just using extracorporeal circulation. So how long, how long have we been using this as a cardiac arrest intervention? Well, ECMO has been around for a few decades uh, it's it's certainly much uh, newer than cardiopulmonary bypass, but um, it, it still has been around for a while. Uh, the ELSO registry, the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, has an international registry, and there's been cases documented in it since the early 90s. And, um, you know, and estimates, of course, of what's being published in things, but, you know, how often are we using eCPR? And if we're kind of making that best fit line over the last decade or so, would you say it's uh, going up as an increased use or kind of going down as in our use has been decreasing? Yeah, I would say it's definitely increasing. And the increasing is is probably exponential. Um, over the last 10 years, there's been a, a over tenfold uh, increase internationally in the number of eCPR cases that have been uh, registered in the ELSO registry. Um, ECMO in general has seen increase over this time, you know, with the H1N1 pandemic and the MERS and, and obviously COVID. Um, and so people have gotten more familiarity with the use of ECMO. And so I think, you know, the eCPR cases are are following that, that increasing trend. Uh, for a small frame of reference, back in 2012, the uh, ELSA registry had documented about 250 eCPR cases worldwide. Um, and just last year, there was over 2,000 in the calendar year of 2022. Yeah, I think we can definitely call that exponential growth. Um, how does 
right? When I think of cardiac arrest, my mind instantly goes to ACLS and BLS, right? And and we kind of know what our goal is there. Does our treatment goal differ with eCPR? Absolutely. So obviously with ACLS and BLS, the, the goal is to get uh, ROSC and to have a native uh, uh, circulation. And that's not the goal with eCPR. The goal is to establish extracorporeal circulation as soon as possible. Um, and that serves, uh, you know, to provide global perfusion. And uh, we'll put a pin in that statement because with differing goals, right, we, the management can differ at a, at a certain point in that decision tree. Now, as we're, as we're introducing eCPR and when we, when I think of ECMO, right, I, I'm, typically exclusively thinking in hospital management of things. So do we, does, how does, um, when we're thinking of cardiac arrest, is it only in hospital cardiac arrest or are we using eCPR in out of hospital cardiac arrest as well? I love this question um, because it's a question that um, is really an area that's evolving over time. So in in Paris, France, they've been doing uh, eCPR out of the hospital uh, so pre-hospital cardiac arrest for quite some time. Um, they've published on this. They've uh, published reports of doing eCPR in the metro stations, in supermarkets. Uh, they even uh, published a case report in the Louvre Museum uh, cannulating uh, cardiac arrest there and have actually a picture of them cannulating in the Louvre. And so they've been doing it for quite some time. It's a, it's, it's a quite intricate uh, infrastructure that they have for doing it. Um, on the state side, Michigan uh, published the Eroka trial uh, a few years back, and it wasn't necessarily at pre-hospital ECMO. It was more so uh, similar to the uh, Eolia trial where they, transport, uh, they, they, they transported um, patients with cardiac arrest to a eCPR-capable facility quickly. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't meet their feasibility endpoint, um, which I, I believe was uh, uh, around 30 minutes from the 911 call to the ED door. Um, but the University of Minnesota here um, has been doing mobile ECMO for, for some time also. They started out with a similar structure where they um, would transport to a um, eCPR-capable facility. But I think the difference with, with the Minnesota program in Iroka was um, they actually uh, had several sites that would be capable. And so they mobilized an ECMO team at the same time as EMS, and they would meet at one of these sites that was close. And they published great results from that. They had um, a 911 call to, to ED door in less than 15 minutes and then less than 15 minutes from the time of ED to ECMO um, circulation. And so uh, the Minnesota program, they, they recently got some funding and have now a, um, a massive ambulance that has uh, uh, imaging capability. It's essentially a mobile cath lab. And so they they're starting to cannulate um, in the field now. So I think there's probably some listeners who heard you tell the stories of what's happening in France and were terrified. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine going to the Louvre and like seeing this happen. 
What would you say on a scale of zero to 10 would be your level of excitement if you in the wild encountered something like this? Because my, well, I, I'm not going to spoil. What, do you, what, what would it be? I would say it'd be bananas. I mean, I, <laughs> I read these case reports and see these photos and I, I think it's incredible. I mean, the, the uh, resources and the infrastructure to be able to do this is, is truly remarkable. Um, so to actually see it happen, I think would be incredible. Yeah, I agree. I'm glad that's, I'm glad that your opinion is exactly where my mind went. I thought you would be, yeah, absolutely ecstatic, but, but to the point that you said, right. Um, the timeliness and just the sheer amount of, um, working together between, you know, not only just healthcare professionals, which in and of itself can sometimes feel like a, a, um, moving mountains, but also, you know, working with, you know, police and, and all the local authorities. It's just a, a kudos to that. Um, now, Patrick kind of introduced some of these, uh, some of the the studies that have come out looking at uh, eCPR recently. So, Caitlin, what what do we have in terms of is there any survival or outcome data when we compare kind of what's referred to as like our conventional CPR and eCPR? Yeah, great question, Nick. So, the most recent study was the Inception study published uh, in January in New England Journal of Medicine. Prior to that, there are um, some smaller prospective studies I'll briefly mention, but mention, but systematic reviews, meta-analysis have showed a benefit, but touching on this inception study. So this was a multi-center study in the Netherlands and they randomized people. to, as you mentioned, conventional CPR versus this eCPR. And their primary outcome was survival with a good neurologic outcome. And they actually found no difference between the two groups. However, there's a bunch of limitations, and I'll leave Patrick, if I miss any out, to comment on them as well. Um, but prior studies, the ARREST study published in 2020, this is that University of Minnesota group that Patrick was talking about. They actually did find a benefit between conventional, ECP, conventional CPR and eCPR, um, with survival to discharge being 43% in the eCPR group and 7% in the conventional CPR group. So looking at some key differences, why was there no difference in the inception study, but benefit in the arrest study? Um, the time to flow in the arrest study, so time from the 911 call and arrest um, till they got cannulation was much faster in the arrest study compared to the inception study. So the arrest study was happening in Minneapolis, um, a big city, potentially EMS getting there faster. Patrick mentioned also the University of Minnesota has uh, a pretty good infrastructure for eCPR. So they have protocols in case policies. They have a team that assembles versus this inception trial. They had 15 different sites and no strict protocol or policy that the study was following. Um, so some of those sites that people were randomized at have a low number of ECMO runs to begin with. So not a clear protocol and policy in place. Um, additionally, they were randomizing people um, potentially in the field. So 26% of people in that eCPR group actually got ROS before they even got to the hospital and then didn't even need to be cannulated. And furthermore, only 66% of people randomized to the eCPR group actually got eCPR. Um, so just a number of limitations looking at those results of the inception trial, which I think just highlights probably the intricacies and difficulties of actually doing a randomized control trial looking at conventional CPR versus eCPR. Yeah, I think that was a, a awesome overview. I think the only thing I would add is um, some of the longer term outcomes. Um, there, there was a recent meta-analysis just a, a couple months ago 
um, that had three randomized trials and, and several observational studies uh, that compared conventional to uh, eCPR and did have uh, more favorable longer-term neurologic outcomes uh, with eCPR. And this was uh, both true in the subset of out-of-hospital arrest and in-hospital arrest. Uh, but of course, uh, the odds ratios uh, were higher for in-hospital arrest. I think a lot of these challenges and, and really what Caitlin was alluding to is the, the intricacy of, of doing this resource-intensive intervention. Um, it's, it's in a way very reminiscent of EOLIA for respiratory ECMO, um, where things change in transit. And so when you're transporting two capable facilities, you get ROSC or you get other interventions that, that ultimately help and you don't need the intervention that you're randomized to. And it's, you know, there's going to be so many confounders, right, in studies like this, right, with, with how complicated, you know, the, these are the sickest of the sick patients, right? So, I mean, realistically, right, you both um, are researchers, like, you know, how challenging do you think it is to design a study that's going to show a true survival benefit with eCPR and not enroll like a thousand patients, right? A, a truly like reasonable sized, um, like sample size to look at it. I think it's probably near impossible. I think Patrick highlighted in you, Nick, the like heterogeneity of these patients, uh, randomizing them, all the stuff in transport as well. Um, I'm not sure we're going to get a good study. I really agree. I think the the you're you're facing two challenges. You're, you're not only facing the the organization and the resources and the complexity of the intervention, but you're also in a way challenged by the selection process, um, and that is what can severely influence the outcomes and and why observational studies are really hard to interpret with eCPRs because of the selection processes is um, quite subjective. Caitlin, one of the things I noticed ironically is, you know, we mentioned the arrest, Iroka, the, the Prague study, and then inception. They were basically recruiting around the same time period, all of them. Now they got published at different times, but from that, like, are there any studies now, you know, looking at this question in the works and maybe, you know, maybe not necessarily survival, but to try to, to help answer some of the more questions, things that we'll get into in a little bit. Are there studies on the horizon that people should kind of keep their eyes peeled for? Yeah, I wish I could say there was lots happening, and Patrick can probably chime in with some of those long-term outcomes from an ED pharmacist perspective. Um, I think the U University of Michigan group is looking at some more uh, studies of early cannulation, uh, but Patrick, I don't know if you have anything with they're looking at longer-term outcomes that are more applicable to your setting. No, I think a lot of the pre-hospital um, trials will, will help uh, uh, clarify a lot of this. Caitlin, I love that you you pointed out, and it's one of the one of the reasons I wanted you to have you both on is you know we're having two different perspectives, right? We have Patrick here who is um, once they're cannulated, right? They're in his unit, and he's dealing with all the complications, the successes, you know, all the the things that go wrong and things. And then you have you have Caitlin who is seeing this from the 
the ED perspective, right? And she's, you know, thinking about it of, you know, what are we doing from this patient who's rolling in? How does that change the care of other patients, right? Like the, you know, you talk about cannula, the goal to cannulation in ED less than 30 minutes, right? Well, depending on your ED, taking away one whole doc to do that, and if you don't have the infrastructure to support it can be challenging. So um, having both perspectives here is, is really cool. And Patrick, you touched on this a little bit, but let dive a little bit deeper in those patients with eCPR about long-term outcomes. You know, what do we know um, or what do maybe we, what do we don't know um, in these, in this group of patients? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's an evolving uh, question because the, there's so many uh, competing um uh, things that influence long-term outcomes in, in, in cardiac arrest. And so I think like you alluded to earlier, it's, it's incredibly challenging to tease these out in trials. Um, the complexity of the selection process for, for identifying candidates, um, how the intervention actually gets deployed, um, it's certainly not uniform across the board. Even in a randomized trial, you're going to have variation between how CPR is administered, how cannulation occurs. Um, and so I think, you, you know, the really the most recent data that we have to go off of is this uh, meta-analysis that was published, I think, in, in Lancet or Lancet Respiratory Medicine um, respiratory back a medicine. couple months yep. ago. Yeah. And so, uh, like I mentioned, they, they only had three randomized trials and it was it was mainly observational studies. But at least in that, the... Um, uh, ECPR did have a signal to improve short and long-term neurologic outcomes. Um, and this uh, did hold true for both in and out of hospital arrest, but was um, uh, quite better for an in-hospital arrest. I, you know, I, I suspect it's really due to response time and, and mobilization of, of um, cannulation in that setting. The listeners may be wondering, like, why, why, why am I, why are we talking, why are we leading off with the studies and talking about this stuff? And I wanted to highlight, and Patrick, I, uh, that's kind of a perfect conclusion, talking about there's so much human element in here, right? And comparing the person who has cannulated 500 people, right, at an ECMO center versus someone who is still very ECMO capable, but they've cannulated 50 patients, right? Yeah. There's, there's human elements in these and capturing these in research could be challenging. And so I, I wanted to highlight the fact that you might look, you might be pulling these studies and be like, wow, why are we doing this? Right. It, it, it's clear, quote unquote, um, that, that it's, it's, that it's not beneficial. And, and I would say the, I don't, I don't believe that. And I think it's a little more complicated. And so I wanted to go into the nuances of it. If you're looking at this for the first time, hearing it for the first time and kind of wondering why we're even talking about it. So, uh, I think that was kind of a great overview of the evidence that we have, you know, um, considerations and things. Now, I think what might be helpful, um, Patrick, is to give, kind of give us a high-level overview of VA ECMO. And I'm sure this this is probably the most challenging part of the talk for Patrick, is doing a high-level overview of ECMO and not like being able to dig into all the awesome nuances of it. But give us just a brief discussion on how this dip, differs from eCPR. I'll try to re- uh, restrain myself, Nick. <laughs> Um, if I get too deep, just, you know, holler and let me know, but, uh, no, I, you know, all jokes aside, ECMO is, is quite a simple intervention. Um, it, it's, um, 
in a way, a form of modified cardiopulmonary bypass. And so cardiopulmonary bypass is, in its most simplest form, uh, drainage of venous blood, oxygenating it, decarboxylating it, and returning it to the arterial system. Um, This is exactly how VA ECMO works um, in its simplistic form. Um, So you're providing full cardiac and respiratory bypass. Uh, I think an important distinction here to remember is that you're not providing 100% cardiopulmonary bypass with ECMO. Um, At most in, in a typical adult with a standard configuration and circuit, you're probably providing around 80% um, uh, cardiac bypass. Um, and so uh, VA ECMO is, is used uh, for eCPR. And so I wouldn't say that they're necessarily different. Um, it's just that it's the modality that we're using to achieve extracorporeal circulation in someone who has cardiac arrest. Um, this is obviously very different from respiratory ECMO, where you're draining venous blood oxygenating and decarboxylating it, and then returning it back to a vein, which of course requires native cardiac function. Um, And so you have to have um, cardiac bypass in VA ECMO to to provide CPR. So Caitlin, who's the ideal patient or maybe a little more broadly, the patient population um, for eCPR? Yeah, I think we've we've kind of touched on this. Like, there's a lot of heterogeneity, and I'd say the candidates are going to be assessed definitely on a case by case basis. But the ideal candidate, um, they should have a witnessed arrest. Um, obviously, if we're in hospital, we can start CPR right away. Out of hospital patient, if it's a witnessed arrest, if EMS could get there right away, or um, there was someone trained in CPR, so they were getting good, high quality CPR and we're able to be transported to the hospital quickly. Um, age is hard, you know, um, a 60-year-old with who's otherwise well is different than maybe a 55-year-old with a lot of comorbidities, um, but they should have not any like end-stage liver disease, end-stage renal disease, or a lot of comorbidities uh, at baseline as well. And then, you know, Patrick, what are contraindications and, you know, are they absolute or maybe relative when we're thinking about ECMO cannulation? Um, you know, when I, cause when I think of contraindications, absolute relative, I think of all to place. So is it, is ECMO the same where you have absolute and relative contraindications? Yeah, I would say in ECMO, it's, uh, it's a lot more gray than it is, <laughs> uh, you know, in the scenario you described. Um, I, the contraindications are, are very important and, and sometimes they're even more important than, than the ideal candidate. Um, because if you find a reason not to put someone on ECMO, then you should not put them on ECMO because ECMO itself carries an inherent mortality risk. So as soon as you provide the intervention, you are increasing mortality risk. And so that's, uh, a, a key, uh, distinction with a lot of other interventions. Um, so a lot of these contraindications there, they're more so um, possible, um, some maybe more than others, but really they're uh, essentially reasons why you shouldn't put someone on. Um, some of the most common ones with eCPR are if you don't have a reversible cause. And so if you know that the cause of arrest is irreversible or you don't know what the 
reversible cause is, I think this is particularly true in out-of-hospital arrest, um, then, then that's not a great candidate. Also, um, characteristics that are associated with poor brain perfusion surrounding the arrest. And so if they had unwitnessed arrests or if they had suboptimal CPR, if they had uh, CPR for a prolonged duration of time, this is also quite an arbitrary um, number. Uh, some say more than 60 minutes. Uh, if you had an, I think I already said unwitnessed arrest, um, but also an unknown downtime. So if you're unwitnessed and unknown downtime, that's certainly not someone you would want to put on on ECMO because you, you question brain perfusion. And so with with that, something uh, similar contraindications are um, uh, poor neurologic function. And so if you uh, don't have accessible neurologic function before their arrest or, or, or know when the last um, good neurologic function was, if there's a catastrophic brain injury, like a, a, a massive bleed, or if there's terminal or, or metastatic or untreatable cancer, um, essentially things that are not compatible with life um, after ECMO, then you shouldn't put them on. Um, aortic dissection is also uh, contraindicated. Um, it, cardiac arrest from aortic dissection is not treated by ECMO, contrary to many beliefs. Um, a contraindication that gets talked a lot about is, is inability to tolerate anticoagulation. And I think this is um, a very gray area because um, the use of anticoagulation and, and withholding it has, has definitely evolved um, and we've learned a lot. But if you have a reason that you're unable to tolerate it, like a brain bleed, you have a different reason to not receive ECMO than just not being able to tolerate anticoagulation. Um, PEA or asystolic arrest, particularly in the out-of-hospital setting, um, because this at baseline is associated with almost no survival, then um, ECMO is certainly not going to help in that situation. And then also, um, this doesn't get thought about a lot, but to put someone on ECMO, you have to have satisfactory vascular access to flow to provide physiologic cardiac output. And so if you don't have that and you can't technically achieve a satisfactory cardiac output based on body habitus or size of vessels and, and cannulas that are needed, um, this could also be a reason to decline ECMO. And then lastly, I do want to say that a lot of these things and, and what Caitlin mentioned about ideal candidates and, and age a lot of these things can actually be dynamic and dependent on how strained a system is. And so during COVID, when we were consuming lots of circuits and we were borrowing circuits from other centers to have more people on pump, our inclusion criteria and selection process for cardiac arrest or any other ECMO would change during these times because you do require staff to maintain these circuits, you need equipment, um, and so it's not a um, endless resource. And so these uh, selection criteria, while we describe them as ideal, um, they can certainly change. 
Yeah, right. This is a very resource intensive process, not only, um, you know, from the staff, but, you know, a lot of them, like I'm thinking of, uh, you know, my center where, you know, the nurses, you know, one to one or two to one, right. And then you have the ECMO clinician, the, the respiratory therapist outside, you know, there's a lot of people involved. So you, you want to use this intervention when there's a, a high probability of success. You know, I, I always joke in CT surgery units, there needs to be a sign above all the doors, right? And, you know, you mentioned with aortic dissection, that just because we can doesn't mean we should, right? And so talking about those um, those contraindications and things I, I thought was pretty important. Now, um, let's kind of walk through the general eCPR process. And, and what I was kind of thinking is, Caitlin could give the listeners an idea of, you know, when they present in the ER, they're being assessed for candidacy and things. And then, you know, Patrick could kind of take over when, as he's part of the ECMO team, when they arrive, right. And kind of talk through the process of when they present to where we finally cannulate. Um, So Caitlin, why don't you start there? Yeah. So ideally there's, well, there is two pathways, like an in-hospital and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. But in my perspective, they're mostly out-of-hospital cardiac arrest or they're coming in pretty sick and then arrest. So those will maybe be some small intricacies, but um, what happens is they come into our resuscitation bay. Um, and I think a key point that helps with this pathway that we'll talk about in detail a little bit later is our EMS crews uh, transport using a Lucas or like automatic compression device. So if they have a shockable rhythm in the field, um, our policies allow them to transport while doing CPR with those devices. And they can call ahead to us and let them know they're coming. Um, so that lets us get ready. And then we could alternately alert the ECMO team. But let's say we didn't um, get a notification or anything. They come in with those Lucas devices on or they got ROSC and now they transport them over um, and we lose pulses. We also use a Lucas device in our resuscitation base. So we put that on and then we're following ACLS and basically based on the criteria I listed for an ideal candidate and reviewing exclusion criteria, our emergency medicine attending um, activates the emergent ECMO activation. And I would say that ultimately the decision to cannulate is that team's decision. So the emergency medicine attending um, errs on the side of activating rather than not activating. So unless there's like, oh, they have a head bleed or something, you know, something is pretty clear that they wouldn't be a candidate, uh, we're activating that team. And I think it's important that there's a lot going on during those stages. They're trying to gather background, call them. Um, and I'd say my most important role then is to continue the ACLS algorithm. So nothing's changing. Uh, we're calling the ECMO team, but we need to continue doing what we know works. Um, so the ECMO team will be activated. And that's when Patrick comes down and helps me out. So Patrick, if you want to share what you guys do then. Yeah, I think this, uh, Nick, is a great um, uh, perspective for our different uh, settings that we, you know, are involved with this. Because as the ECMO team, we consider the call from uh, the ED as a consultation because we have a different um, uh, definition of activation, which I'll I'll get to in the next couple minutes. Um, And so when the ECMO attending is called to evaluate someone for ECMO, Um, We have a formalized process that we use for um, any inpatient consultation. So we we provide eCPR consultation to anyone in the hospital, um, inpatient, procedural area, in the hallway, the elevator, the cafeteria, wherever there's cardiac arrest, uh, we will respond to a consultation. 
And so the ECMO attending has um, a backpack that is filled with uh, supplies. Uh, these are mainly supplies to uh, start obtaining vascular access that's necessary for cannulation. And so they'll take this backpack and they'll go to the scene. Uh, so in this scenario, you know, we're, we're responding to Kalen's call. So we're going to the ED, to the recess bay. Um, the ECMO attending will evaluate. They will try to obtain the history of the arrest. So really thinking about all the things we just talked about in the past 10 minutes about contraindications. You really want to assess if there's any reason that you should not put this patient on ECMO. Um, and so if, if they decide that this patient is a reasonable candidate for ECMO, um, they will uh, uh, run the case by another um, uh, ECMO attending. And maybe I missed this detail before, but um, our ECMO attending is a cardiac anesthesiologist by training uh, who is uh, the uh, intensivist attending in the ECMO ICU. And so um, cardiac anesthesiologists will consult another anesthesiologist um, or a cardiac surgeon um, to run the case by uh, to ensure that, you know, there's at least two um, uh, arbitrators uh, uh, deciding. And so if the decision is to go on ECMO, that is when uh, we formally activate ECMO. And so this process is very similar to, or at least the way we've built it, is very similar to um, activating a, a code blue or cardiac arrest in the hospital. Um, so we call the operator. We let them know that it's a emergency ECMO activation, um, the location, and 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 so on. Um, the operator has specific instructions on how they dispatch this information, and so there's a specific pager pool that the activation goes to. So it is not a house-wide announcement. It only goes to a specific list of pagers um, for all relevant ECMO personnel. Um, so the uh, uh, respiratory therapist, the ECMO specialist, the cardiac perfusionist, uh, a cardiac surgeon and cardiac surgery fellow, um, our own uh, cardiac monitoring techs that bring ultrasounds for transesophageal echo, as well as um, uh, uh, vascular ultrasound, um, and, and the pharmacist gets the pager as well. And so um, during this time, while all these different personnel are being activated and, and come in, uh, the uh, ECMO attending, who is already at the bedside, will begin obtaining initial vascular access. Uh, while these um, uh, other personnel respond, our ECMO specialists uh, bring a uh, emergency eCPR cart, which is very similar to a, a, a code cart that has cannulas and everything that you would need for ECMO cannulation. And then our perfusionist brings a uh, pre-primed ECMO circuit uh, to, the, to the scene as well. Um, and uh, I think during this time, while uh, initial access is being obtained. If a Lucas or an automatic compression device is not already on the patient, uh, we will request for that because it frees up real estate because we essentially need to turn this into an operating room. And so the less people you have uh, at the bedside, the better because you'll need 
uh, uh, cannulator. We, we usually do bilateral femoral cannulation, so we'll have one on each side. Um, uh, if the anatomy is compatible with it, they'll cannulate the femoral vein and go straight up the uh, IVC on the right side and then cannulate the femoral artery on the left side and go straight up the aorta. Um, and so this is being done simultaneously. And so if you have less, uh, you know, congestion uh, with with humans, uh, the better. And so we'll ask for that. We'll, we we included a, a, a schematic in the in the paper in AJHP of, of how we like to arrange the room to facilitate this because again we have cannulators we have an ultrasound machine we have really two ultrasounds one for for transesophageal echo um, and then another ultrasound for for uh, either transthoracic or or for for the groin access um, and then we proceed with with cannulation at that time. Yeah, this is uh, the ECPR, the, the ECMO team rolls deep from like when, when you guys come in, right? It's, a, it's definitely a crew. Now, I love that you brought this up, Patrick. I got one question. It's not about like you and Caitlin did an awesome job of, prescri- of describing the timeline. I have a question about the ECMO backpack. So how is it like comically big? Is it like, is, does it, is it funny at all? Because just the idea that the attending is the one bringing the backpack, I just, I chuckled as I read it. So when you brought it up, I, I had to ask something about it. Yeah, it, um, it, it is quite big, um, but for good reason. And, you know, some, some sites will have, uh, you know, mobile kits, right? For like neonatal codes or something, there's like a tackle box or whatever. Um, we had just found that having a backpack makes you a lot more agile, and so you can, you know, go up and down stairs. You can, you know, respond pretty quickly, and you can also have the equipment that you need. Um, so these are similar to any type of kit. You know, we stock them and we we you know uh, a zip tie it with a secure tie, uh, so we know when to restock it. Um, but yeah, it is, it's, um, the one we use is red. And so it does stand out when, when someone's going through the halls. Nick, it's like the size of a large hiking backpack, bright red. So if something happened, they're good for two to three days in that kit, right? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's hands-free, right? They know they're about to be busy. Maybe they got to finish that water, get a quick coffee as they're going, right? Whatever. One quick other thing, you know, the uh, the article figure two has a great schematic that walks through that process that Caitlin and Patrick just described, obviously in a little less detail, um, but that's a good overview of kind of that general process from that out of hospital presentation to um, cannulation. Now, as we've described, right, these could certainly be longer codes than we are used to, right? Like the, the goal from... Um, call to basically initiation is like less than 60 or 90 minutes. So what are medications or interventions that we might see in these types of cardiac arrests that maybe are less common in shorter codes or alternatively, right? Do we, do we avoid using specific things due to possible cannulation? Yeah, there's um, certainly lots of considerations. And I think you bring up a good point about duration of CPR because the longer that you do CPR, the more time you have for information gathering. 
And so the more likely you are to pursue interventions that you had time to think about and maybe evaluate during the arrest um, that you otherwise wouldn't during a short code. Um, I think something you, you um, uh, bring up, Nick, about things you might want to avoid or see or, um, you know, it really depends on the situation. Um, something that gets brought up quite a lot is the use of thrombolysis if there's a suspected reason for the arrest to give thrombolysis. Um, and our general approach is that until you have confirmed that the patient is an ECMO candidate and the intent is to go on ECMO, you treat that patient like an ACLS patient. And so um, we don't withhold life-saving interventions just for the belief that maybe this patient will go on ECMO. Um, so uh, our view is, you know, if, if it's indicated and you are not confirmed as a candidate, um, then you should do whatever that is necessary uh, for that ACLS code. Yeah, I'd say another drug that comes up that I get questions a lot too is like um, maybe a ingestion or overdose situation and giving intralipids, um, which just is the same response as Patrick's just indicated with lytics. Do what you need to do and treat the patient until you confirm that they're candulated for ECMO. So, you know, as if, if we're following this kind of um, fictional patient, right, the, the ECMO team has arrived. Let's kind of talk about some common medications used during ECMO cannulation. Because, Patrick, you talked about how some places will have a kit or tackle, but, you know, you all have a, like, a, like an eCPR ECMO cart. Um, what are common medications that you'll, that you'll use or that, that people would see um, in a ECMO cannulation? I would say there's very few. Um, and so these are really to facilitate getting on pump, right? Because as soon as you've confirmed that you're a candidate, the goal is to establish uh, extracorporeal circulation as quick as possible. Um, the uh, one thing that is, is almost always necessary is anticoagulation. Um, and so we bolus heparin uh, prior to advancing cannulas. Um, a very rare situation comes up where you um, have confirmed known history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or HIT. Uh, in those cases, you could give a bolus of bivalrudin. This is done in the cardiac operating rooms for bypass um, in patients who have HIT, and so there's um, definitely some experience uh, from that setting. I would say it's it's obviously quite rare, um, but uh, other things that, that I think about um, are what is my post-ECMO situation going to look like? And what I mean by that is when patients are resting, they get loaded with catecholamines. Um, we're giving epinephrine every few minutes, um, large doses of epinephrine every few minutes, and what makes this situation unique is that once you go on pump, you are providing full physiologic cardiac output. And that is very different from someone who achieved ROSC after arresting for 30 minutes, right? They have impaired cardiac dysfunction. And so the cardiac output and the effective circuitory perfusion 
is severely impaired and probably needs to be supported with a lot of catecholamine. Um, that's very different from someone who receives ECMO for CPR because they can persist to have no cardiac function and receive full cardiac output from ECMO. And so this makes it really problematic if you have high amounts of circuit circulating catecholamines um, because now all of a sudden you have normal physiologic cardiac output, um, but you could have excessively high arterial afterload, which may make it harder for the left ventricle to recover. Um, it could also impair your ability to flow on ECMO. Um, and so these are things that we think about. And uh, the closer we get to cannulation, our general practice is to give less and less epinephrine. Um, because again, your goal is to get on ECMO because ECMO is going to perfuse. It is going to increase your chances of coronary perfusion to regain a perfusing rhythm. And so the necessity of epinephrine is, is uh, much less, and there's certainly lots of risks with overdoing it. Um, and so our approach is just to give low boluses. So we dilute epinephrine and give 10 to 30 micrograms at a time if we need to. Um, but otherwise, we tend to avoid it if uh, being on pump is imminent. Yeah, and I mean, that makes complete sense because, you know, if you follow, right, it's the ACL guidelines, one milligram of epinephrine every three to five minutes, but you know, everyone's on that three minutes, right? So if you follow that, they're getting 20 milligrams in an hour. And let's just say we're doing non-weight based, right? That's over 300 mics per minute of epinephrine going around. So that, that does make complete sense. And when you say... Um, you kind of make a, you know, almost push dose epinephrine, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's when you're taking your, your code dose epinephrine, you're taking one ML of that, diluting it into a 10 ML solution and then giving, and then using that as your administration. Is that, is that a accurate description of that? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, and you know, to add to that, Nick, um, there are some animal studies that, that show impaired cerebral blood flow with excessive amounts of epinephrine given during cardiac arrest. Um, so again, if we're doing eCPR and the intent is to preserve neurologic function by establishing a circuitory you know, uh, perfusion quickly, um, that can counteract what we're actually trying to achieve with ECMO. So all of this is happening, right? The, the Lucas is on. As you're getting, and for those who haven't seen the the cannulas, there I like to call them garden hoses. I mean, these things are whopping. So if you have a chance to see it, definitely do that. Um, but when do we? At what point do we stop the Lucas? Or if we don't, do we stop our CPR and move to that kind of post resuscitation care? Yeah. Um, so I, I want to back up a little bit because. Um, there, there is a key point, and we, we make this point in the paper um, about when you stop and don't stop the, the Lucas or chest compressions or checking rhythms, um, and it goes back to the goal of eCPR and establishing circulation quickly. And so once you are a confirmed candidate and the goal is to go on ECMO, um, and, and that's the ultimate goal, um, that's the point at which we stop pausing chest compressions to assess pulses. We stop checking for rhythms. We just provide continuous CPR until you're on ECMO. 
Um, and so stopping those delays is critical once you're a confirmed candidate. Uh, when you stop chest compressions um, on ECMO is once you've achieved a satisfactory cardiac output. So usually in a normal-sized adult, this is around three to four liters per minute um, on an, on, from the ECMO pump. Um, that's when you would stop CPR. That's a really good point, highlighting the the big differences um, because everyone, you know, two minutes, rhythm check and things. And it makes sense that you wouldn't do that, right? Because you're cannulating for ECMO thinking that if we don't do this, right, this patient is probably not going to. So it makes no sense to stop until you get the cannulation. So that's a really, I, that's a good point. Um, completely agree. Now, Caitlin, are there universal guidelines, right? Like when we're talking ACLS, right, we have the AHA, the circulation guidelines, and, you know, are there, is there like a governing body that gives us guidelines for what to do in, in these kind of eCPR patients or are we kind of more, you know, Patrick mentioned it's the gray. Is it more kind of site specific protocols for things? Yeah, unfortunately there's no like AHA universal guidelines at this time, or even like, you know, we have our stroke and STEMI protocols, get them to lytics that have been X amount of time. We don't have any of those timeframes or guidance at this point. Um, I think as we start using, doing more eCPR, we might more move to that. We just have our Mayo Clinic like hospital-specific protocols, which outline how much heparin to use. Um, a lot of time and effort has been put in to create like this paging system, the consult, the activation, the team that's coming down, the backpack, um, and a lot of education on what the ED team does and the ECMO team does so that we've ironed it out when the ECMO team comes, the ED team moves to the head of the bed. So while not universal guidelines, this site-specific protocol for us, which has made like eCPR much more effective in people knowing their roles on the team. Yeah, that the, because, you know, going into this, I was like, oh, you know, we have the ELSO guidelines, right? Like they'll definitely like give us some guidance and things, but, um, as Caitlin pointed out, uh, they unfortunately do not. And it makes, right, it's, it, they're so heterogeneic, right? And knowing that, um, you know, as we're going towards using grade evidence and things, right? If there's, if we, if we don't have great recommendations or great data to make recommendations, right? It's probably best to not have them, right? Or um, in that sense. So following those site specific things, um, also makes sense, right? When you're at a, especially a teaching place, you have people moving in and out, everyone knows where they need to be in the room. All those kinds of things are important. Um, so post cannulation, kind of in the acute phase, because obviously there's tons of things long-term that, that can happen, but in that immediate acute phase, are there any adverse effects that we're specifically worried about or we keep like our eyes peeled for, you know, looking for this lab or, or this, you know, change in vital sign? Yeah, my, uh, in my practice, there's a handful of things that I think about immediately after going on pump. Uh, the first one is uh, confirmation that you're actually on VA ECMO. And so uh, circuits, uh, we pre-prime our circuits with crystalloid, and so um, they are clear fluid. And so once you go on pump, you can see venous blood drainage, you can see it go through the oxygenator, and you can see it come out um, uh, uh, oxygenated. And so color change, uh, between the venous and the arterial limb of the ECMO circuit, um, is very important to confirm, um, and to, to ensure that you're actually on VA ECMO. 
the other things that, that I think about are, again, going back to the, the discussion on catecholamines is um, arterial hypertension and needing to cut back or stop epinephrine infusion or, or anything else. Um, or even in some cases needing to give afterload reduction. Um, and then also uh, sort of tied with this is distension of the left ventricle. And so if you went on pump for eCPR and you still don't have any cardiac function, um, again, ECMO does not divert 100% of the cardiac output. And so you still have cardiac output that will pass through the native cardiopulmonary bed. And if the left ventricle is not ejecting, then you run the risk of that left ventricle distending, getting a functional mitral regurgitation, pulmonary edema, and eventually complete cardiovascular collapse. And so uh, looking at that immediately and understanding uh, if that's contributory is, is very important. So it can be intervened on early. And then lastly, um, I think about limb ischemia. And so in VA ECMO, at least in adults, uh, the most uh, common location to cannulate the arterial limb of the ECMO circuit is in a femoral vessel. And that um, uh, cannula provides retrograde flow up the aorta and preferentially away from the limb that it is cannulated in. And so you run the risk of that limb uh, becoming hypo hypoxic and ischemic. Um, and so, uh, um, uh, it, especially depending on the vessel size and the cannula size that was used. And so, um, we have ways of, of uh, uh, preventing uh, limb ischemia uh, in those settings. Great, great advice and things to kind of look for in that um, immediate period um, now, we'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about the effect of ECMO on our medication pharmacokinetics. Um, and thinking about probably more in our long-term patients who are, who are on ECMO for, you know, um, you know, days and things, but it also could be the acute phase. What are, what are some effects and things that we maybe expect to see or things we monitor for in terms of those pharmacokinetic changes um, once patients are on VA ECMO? Yeah, that's a great question, Nick, and it's a completely um, complex answer. <laughs> and um, I, I would say it definitely depends on the situation. It depends on the ECMO configuration. It depends on the drug itself. Uh, we know in general from ex vivo studies and from uh, uh, small human studies and, and animal studies, we know general characteristics that are affected. Um, volume of distribution should be obvious to most um, because the ECMO circuit is pre-primed. Hours hold around 600 to 700 um, cc of crystalloid. And so this will, um, in the acute setting, increase your effective volume distribution. This is much more problematic in, in uh, patients of smaller size or pediatrics or neonates because the circuit um, provides a greater proportion of their total effective cardiac output. So it has a much greater effect on volume distribution. Um, but we also know that drugs that are highly lipophilic and protein bound um, tend to be much more affected by, by ECMO 
especially um, as the ECMO duration goes on. Um, but again, there's not really anything that you should preferentially avoid because of that. Um, it, it's my practice that if a medication is clinically indicated and it is necessary to treat the conditions the patient has, then that's the medication that should be given. And any effects that are influenced by ECMO, those can be accounted for by changes in dosing uh, to achieve targets. And so I would say use therapeutic drug monitoring whenever you have it, titrate to effect rather than to specific doses um, of drugs. Wow, very very well said. I have zero things to add to that. The only thing I'll point out is um, the paper. Uh, it has uh, references fifteen through eighteen are a goldmine if you're involved in this in terms of dosing recommendations. Um, they have a it's it's box two in the paper that talks about some of those factors that Patrick highlighted and some other things. Um, but yeah, I follow Patrick's advice. I think that's very very well said. Now. Um, based on both of your experiences, right? What advice would you give to those who are, who are involved with, or maybe looking to set up eCPR programs in their facility? Kate, let's start with you and end with Patrick. Yeah, I think the biggest thing Patrick highlighted, like a lot of pearls, um, that like as EM pharmacists, you don't often think of, you know, these reduced doses of epinephrine how to adjust your vasopressors uh, after you cannulate. But I think the biggest thing is education. Um, we've started to do eCPR a lot more. I think, you know, the first case or two is pretty overwhelming. Um, but making sure we educated the team about the protocols and policies in place and then educated the pharmacist about um, the epinephrine, heparin dosing, um, some of these effects that you can see afterwards. The other piece of advice I say is we, it seems simple, but that backpack has heparin in it and we've optimized our PIXIS machines in our recess space to also have heparin available. So just looking at what you have and have the heparin, other meds you would need like readily available. Yeah, I think the only thing that I would add is um, making sure that you have a clear delineation of roles and what the structure is. I think it's quite obvious from our discussion today that um, really CPR in general is a very timely intervention, and uh, eCPR is no exception to that. And so if you have a clear process of how the ED team consults ECMO, how the patient is evaluated, how ECMO is act eventually activated and the uh, procedure occurs, um, having that clearly laid out is critical um, and then also uh, to, to add to Caitlin about education, this is this is really critical, um, you know, especially because of the roles that are necessary and the amount of resource that needs to be given um, during cannulation. And like we talked about, there's a certain point in which you stop checking pulses, you stop um, assessing rhythms, um, understanding when those things occur. Um, so that you can have a seamless process is is very important. I think the seamless process is key, right? I think the the best codes that we're at, right? It's 
everyone, it's functioning like a pit stop in a NASCAR race, right? Everyone knows their role. Everyone's doing it. It's, it's on the quieter end, as quiet as you can be in these scenarios, right? And so a lot of the things that, that you all highlighted, right, is, is, is making it so that you're following a process every time, right? You are, everyone is, everyone knows their role. So even if someone new comes in, hey, you're over there and this, this, and this, right? If it's, if they don't know. And so I think that, that is really key. And, and those roles that can be important in the ED when you have multiple providers, potentially multiple people giving orders and things, um, and maybe not necessarily understanding some of the nuances. So, um, great recs there. Caitlin, what would you say is the pharmacist's role in eCPR? You all kind of highlight some of this in the paper, but give us a little tease and things that we need to make sure that we're that we're doing as pharmacists. Yeah, I'll highlight a few bullet points of specifically what our role is. Um, I think in these situations, one of the biggest things uh, before, like as we would activate ECMO, is ensuring we're continuing ACLS algorithm, uh, chest compressions, pulse checks defibrillation, epi, et cetera, as needed. Uh, the room gets a little hectic. The attending is on the phone trying to get the history. So being that presence of making sure we're following that algorithm and getting those meds ready. And then once we make that deci- decision to cannulate, um, as Patrick stated, it's kind of pretty simple. We just are worried about the heparin. So preparing the heparin for cannulation, um, taking into consideration the amount of epi they're getting, um, Nick, you can probably appreciate this and other ED pharmacists that are listening, but sometimes we know the room better than this consult team that's coming out. So admittedly, I'm getting like sterile gloves. Here's this kit. Here's tubing. Here's a bag of fluids, et cetera. Um, so beyond ACLS and heparin, it's just doing some of those things we usually do in the room. And then um, I'll just caveat that I acknowledge all the effects of drug disposition. And as Patrick said, we really wouldn't change anything in the acute period. So I'll admit as an ED pharmacist, post-cannulation, if they need sedation or other meds, um, I'm taking little consideration into that in the emergent period um, and just doing what we need to do and then getting them to Patrick's unit. I think the one thing that I would add um, and encourage uh, pharmacists to do if if you're either um, at an eCPR program or you're establishing one is to help with the selection process. And so when someone comes from the outside with out-of-hospital arrest, uh, comes to the ED, everyone has no information, right? And so to be able to assess all of these reasons why you should not put a patient on ECMO um, is a comprehensive and, and sometimes challenging process especially when every team doesn't have the history. And so if you can help assess those key things that are necessary for decision-making, um, I think that's, that's uh, invaluable to the entire process. Well, what a, what a master class between you two talking about both the, the ED, the cannulation process, getting into some of the things to think about afterwards. As we kind of like wrap up, what would you say, what would you kind of say are some of the take-home points, some of the biggest things, you know, either from, from the article, things we highlighted here, what have you, thinking about, right, eCPR and, and uh, considerations for the pharmacist? I'd say... Uh Biggest things are to know, communicate, and we kind of have the figure of the steps to take and then who's in the room um, and having a protocol and policy in place. Yeah, and I would also add, um, don't overthink the situation. Um, 
simplistically speaking, ECMO is is quite um, straightforward uh, in terms of how it works, and so not not overcomplicating that. Um, but also, I think it's critical that that pharmacists and, and and frankly any team member that's involved in in ECMO support um, understand what ECMO is, the entire procedure, the entire process, um, because then you can modify uh, the service that you provide to that situation depending on how that um, uh, situation evolves or changes or how it presents. The paper, remember, in AJHP, extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation, a primer for pharmacists. This is Zip Drive. Everyone needs to go download this now. And a reminder, uh, reach out to Caitlin and Patrick, who we owe a huge thank you to. So at CB, the PharmD, and at PV Roosh. Oh, I did it without... Uh, uh, spelling it this time, but, uh, Caitlin and Patrick, I appreciate you, you both for your time, expertise, all you did. What an awesome paper. I appreciate you coming on, being able to, uh, to highlight some of the key, key points and, and things you probably didn't get to in the, in the 10 page paper. Thanks, Nick. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Nick. Thanks again to Caitlin and Patrick. Uh, let me know what you think at pharmacy to dose, uh, and pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Website's coming, taking a little longer than expected, but I promise it's going to be worth it. Uh, the reference list is in that episode description of all the things that we talked about. I want to point out we have the reference to the ECPR in the Louvre, right? That has an incredible picture of it. So definitely click that reference list. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate. For over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials in the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.